Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This episode is powered by Poddex. Poddex are unique interview questions and episode starting prompts in the palm of your hand. So whether you're a new podcaster or existing broadcaster looking to grow your audience and have more meaningful conversations, you're going to want to check out Poddex. Now, if you want to get 10% off your order right now, you can go to poddex.com and type in coupon code, what's the code? Larry21. Yes, that's the code. Check out poddex.com. Take your podcast to the next level. Welcome to the True Crime Never Sleeps podcast. We dive into stories of true crime, from unsolved cold cases to historic kidnapping to gangsters and beyond. We are your source for true crime. We thank you for listening. Welcome to the True Crime Never Sleeps podcast. I'm your host, Larry Lees. On today's episode of Hollywood Homicides, we dive into the red lipstick murder, the tragic death of Jane French. But before we do that, a word from Before we dive into today's episode, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Good Ranchers. If you're anything like me, you know that good quality meat makes all the difference in your home-cooked meals. That's why I love Good Ranchers. They deliver 100% American premium meat straight to my doorstep. Since I started using them, my barbecues have gone from great to phenomenal. If you're a foodie or just love a good steak, check out Good Ranchers today. The game changer for meal times. They offer beef, chicken, and seafood. Check them out today and use the link in the description to help support the channel. And without further ado, let's dive into today's episode. Of course, before we dive into today's episode, I'd like to remind you you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, Instagram. Just search True Crime Never Sleeps. And of course, without further ado, let's dive into today's episode. It was 8.15 a.m. on February 10th, 1947, when H.C. Shelby, 42-year-old bulldozer operator, was on his way to a job site, one of the endless housing tracks springing up in the post Just off Grandview Boulevard, on an isolated, weedy stretch of land nicknamed the Moors, Shelby noticed a pile of stylish women's clothing. When he went to investigate, he found the naked body of a dark-haired woman, face up beneath a dew-covered red dress and blue coat with fox fur cuffs. The tragic victim had initially been smashed in the skull several times with a blunt metal weapon, a socket wrench most likely. However, this didn't deliver a fatal blow. Instead, the murderer inflicted the killer blows by violently and sadistically repeatedly stomping upon the poor, unconscious victim's bodies. She had been stomped and beaten so violently that she suffered massive internal bleeding, a broken neck, and a punctured heart. Bleeding to death, the killer took the time to mark their heinous crime. Using red lipstick from the victim's purse, the killer proceeded to write a message across the victim's torso. A QPD. Beneath this, the name text was also written. The victim was quickly identified as 44-year-old Jean French, the 
surprisingly, Wretch's horrific death made front page news and was quickly dubbed the lipstick murder. Headlines for the Herald Express blared, Werewolf strikes again, kills a L.A. woman with B.D. Lombard. Now what you heard was not a slip-up on my part. The Herald Express misreported at the time, as did other news outlets, the message that was left by the supposed killer. Despite the coroner stating that the words written in red lipstick included the words P.D., many in the press instead reported this as B.D. This immediately led many in the media to link the murder of Jean French to that of Elizabeth Short, a.k.a. the Black Dahlia murder whose nude bisected body had been found in an empty lot only three weeks earlier. While Short's brief tragic life and unsolved murder have captivated the popular imagination for decades, a cautionary noir tale of a pale, pretty red riding hood swallowed up by the Hollywood wolves, French's life has been reduced to little more than a footnote, despite its fascinating mix triumph and tragedy. Jean Nettie Axford was born into a large family in Texas on October 6, 1902. At the age of 18, she married David Yandel Rather, often described as a wealthy oil man, who owned several large farms. That same year, she gave birth to David, her only child. The couple settled in Amarillo, where Jean worked as a nurse at St. Anthony Hospital. The marriage was short-lived, and in 1924, the young couple divorced. Pretty restless divorcee soon moved to Los Angeles with her son and continued working as a nurse. In 1925, she married a man named David Thomas in Long Beach. They divorced soon after. Over the next few years, Jean lived an adventurous, unconventional life. She was put in charge of a band of nurses employed by a large oil company in South America. Flying over jungles from oil field to oil field, she soon became captivated by the skies and learned to fly herself. She was a member of the Women's Air Reserve and the 99 Club, an organization of pioneering women aviators. By 1931, the flying nurse was gaining notoriety. One story syndicated nationwide featured a photograph of a beaming Jean in a form-fitting aviatrix uniform with the following quote, Maybe patients won't want to get well when Miss Jean Axford Thomas of Dallas, Texas, returns to Columbia, South America. After flying over jungles in her professional capacity a few years ago, she quit nursing to study aviation. Now she is trying to find now she is trying for a mechanics license in Dallas and will then fly back to Columbia. Jean's love of flying consumed her personal life as well. In October 1931, she married a fellow aviator named Curtis Bauer in Dallas. The couple separated only five weeks later. February 1932, Jean again made national news. She became the first person in Southern California to attempt to obtain a divorce by airmail from the liberal Mexican courts. That summer, her story hit the wires again when she was reported missing by her mother. Jean soon sent word to the United Press by cablegram that she was safe and okay in Mexico City, saying, quote, I can't understand the worry I have caused in the United States by flying to Mexico. I'm flying back for the Olympics. Over the next decade, it's unclear what Jean was up to. It has been reported that she worked as a nurse, as a stewardess, and for the Red Cross, and that she continued to fly. It also has been written that she acted in bit parts of films and traveled the world as part of an international set in Paris, London, and New York, with her friend 
Harris and fashion icon Wilson Rogers. But these accounts are dip difficult to corroborate or source. What is certain is that in 1947, these glory days have long since passed. Newly separated from her fourth husband of two years, aircraft plant employee Frank F. French, Jane lived in a small apartment at 3535 Military Avenue in Palms, a little more than a mile from where her broken body was found. She seems to have succumbed to a drinking problem and accused Frank of beating her on January 26 during a drunken brawl. The last hour of Jean's life were a confusing, baffling tangle. At around 7.30 p.m. on Sunday, February 9th, she had dinner and drinks at the Plantation Cafe on Washington Boulevard. She was there with two men, one of whom waitress Christine Studnicka described as having dark hair and a small mustache. While the men ordered food, Jean went to a payphone, apparently already intoxicated. According to author and former LAPD detective Steve Odell, who was interviewed by LA Weekly, quote, during the phone call, Stanika said people nearby could hear French bark in the receiver in a very loud voice. Don't bring a bottle. The landlady doesn't allow it. While she's still on the phone, the victim yelled at the two men in her booth. Don't put any liquor in the car. And don't take any liquor. Studnicka observed that the two men appeared to be arguing between themselves, and it was her impression that they were arguing over which one was going to accompany the victim. Roy J. Fetcher, the operator of a driving cafe on Santa Monica Boulevard, reported that Jean came into his establishment around 9.30 p.m. alone. She drank a cup of coffee with Roy and told him her woes. She said her husband was sadistic. She said he liked dark things and said he had beaten her several times. Then she raised a pair of dark glasses she was wearing to show me a couple of black eyes she had. She said he had given her. At 10.30, Jean appeared in a Venice Boulevard bar and announced she was committing her husband to the neuropsychiatric ward at the Sawtell Veterans Hospital the following day. Jean then went to visit her estranged husband at his morning house in Santa Monica. Frank claimed that she tried to convince him to go out with her before hitting him on the head with a handbag. She was mean when she'd be drinking, Frank told the police. She had been drinking Sunday night, but did not appear intoxicated. Sometime after midnight, Piccadilly Drive-In on Washington Place, the medium, small, dark-complexioned man who bragged about the large tip he gave their waitress. At around 1.30, Jean sat on the first stool of the Pan American Bar and drank at seven high. She put 25 cents in the kitty and asked pianist Sam Young to play for her. At 2 a.m., the bar closed and the bartender noticed Jean and her friend fighting. Young went outside just in time to see Jean and her companion get in an old, beat-up sedan. He was the last person besides her killer to see Jean alive. LAPD was unwilling to publicly link the murders of Jean French and Elizabeth Short to one unidentified on the loose serial killer. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Instead, they chose to focus on Frank French, Jean's tall and 
questionable husband who may have been suffering from PTSD after years in the Marine Corps, including a stint as a gunnery sergeant in World War II. Frank and Jean had a volatile relationship with violence on both sides. Shortly before Jean's murder, Frank himself had been arrested after he had punched Jean in the face during one particularly bad argument. Brought in for questioning, Frank initially denied having seen Jean the night before. When he finally did admit having been visited by her, he emphatically denied hurting her, claiming he wouldn't have harmed a hair on her head. Jean's son David, a 25-year-old father living in Dondo Beach, also was questioned. When he ran into his stepfather at the police station, the two men had a curious conversation. According to the Los Angeles Times, saying, quote, Well, I've told them the truth, David um, rather said. If you're guilty, there's a God in heaven who will take care of you. I swear to God, I didn't kill her, French stated. There was a time this afternoon when if I had seen you, I can't say what might have happened. You know, I love mom very much. I loved her too, French replied. Despite their initial uh, belief, police could find no evidence with which to tie the murder of Jean French to her ex-husband, Frank. Furthermore, Frank's landlady did indeed confirm his alibi that he hadn't left his flat that evening. Finally, investigators couldn't match the shoe prints found at the murder scene to Frank. Despite no evidence against Frank, French police still believe Frank could be the man they were looking for. And so had Frank partake in a lie detector test. Frank passed the lie detector test, and police finally moved on to other possible suspects. Detectives next tried to find the man with a dark complexion that was seen with Gene in the Pan American Bar in West Washington Place. Unfortunately, police were unable to trace the individual in question. Detectives were getting nowhere fast, and they had very few leads to go on. They traced the car Gene French owned to a parking lot. Witnesses said that the vehicle had been there since around 3 a.m. on the morning of the murder. One of the witnesses, spoken to a night watchman, claimed that it was a male who had left the car at the location and not Gene. This man was also never traced. The main theory that keeps getting pushed is that Elizabeth Short's killer is the same killer of Gene French. Some police officers, including LAPD homicide captain Jack Donahoe, uh, started publicly, or stated publicly, I should say, that they believed the Elizabeth Short and Jean French murders were committed by the same man. On March 19, 1947, the LA Examiner published 11 Points of Similarity, a document written by members of LAPD informing the public that they believed the three women, Elizabeth Short, Jean French, and a new victim, Evelyn Winters, had all been murdered by the same killer. No suspect was ever publicly identified, and investigators were unable to identify and locate final witnesses and suspects, including the two male friends Jean had been seen with on her final night out. Another theory involves a lover of Jean. Some three years after the murder of Jean French, an investigation by the grand jury was ordered. They gave a scathing report on the standard of investigations into a number of unsolved murders of women throughout the 1940s in Los Angeles. This led to many of them being looked into again, including that of Jean French. Walter Morgan and Frank Jemison of the district attorney's office were assigned the French case, and they soon discovered a prime suspect. Four months before the brutal killing of Jean French, and while still with husband Frank, 
Capere hired a painter named George Witt to work on the couple's home. The investigators discovered that Jean and the man soon started seeing one another, with Witt admitting to going on several dates with Jean. Morgan and, and Jemison found the man's behavior during their investigation into, his, into him questionable. The pair also uncovered during their investigation that the painter had burned some clothing and several pairs of shoes around the time of the murder. Witt reportedly said he did this as he feared he would have been he would have the murder. <clears throat> Excuse me. He feared he would have the murder of Jean Frenchett pinned on him once police found out about the affair. Contradicting reports make it hard to decipher whether these shoes would even have been the same size as those wore by the person who savagely stomped Jean French to death. Despite the initial interest, George Witt was seemingly able to provide a solid alibi and prove he wasn't the killer. The man was soon cleared of any involvement. A third theory involves a hidden message. Several who have looked into the crime have tried to use the message left in red lipstick on Jean's body as a clue, which makes perfect sense and must have been left for a reason. Some have taken the changing PD to BD to link French to Elizabeth Short. However, others have, actually, have used the actual message left by the killer. One theory is that PD stands for Police Department, and it was some sort of message to the police. A more interesting theory is that the message refers to someone with the initials PD and Tex is short for Texas. Jean French, of course, spent much of her early life in Texas, not leaving until after her first divorce. Could something or someone from Jean's past have caught up with her and led to her murder? A more bizarre theory comes from Dr. George Hodel. In the book Black Dahlia Avenger, a genius for murder, the author of the book, Steve Hodel, Names his own father as the killer of Elizabeth Short. Odell also believes his father killed several other women, including Georgette Bardorf and Jean French. Odell claims that the murder of French was a message to the police after it was reported in the press that they arrested a suspect for the murder of Elizabeth Short. Dr. George Hodel therefore murdered Jean French and left the initials BD on her body. This, of course, does ignore the fact that the coroner clearly stated the initials were PD and not BD. It also doesn't explain the writing of the word text underneath. Odell also makes several other mistakes, such as writing that French died of blunt trauma to, due to the blows she suffered in the, to the head, when in fact she was still alive after those blows, and she died due to injuries incurred from being stomped on so viciously. Odell's book does make for an interesting read. However, it has to be questioned whether in his desperation to name his father as the killer, Hodel opts to pick and choose which evidence to believe and incorporate in his book. But this all brings us to our final theory, which is Jean's death was a racist attack. The description of the last person seen with Jean French was that it was a small man with a dark complexion. The man was undeniably a suspect, as mentioned. He was the last person seen with the victim. The fact he was small also stands out due to the killer only have been a size six or seven shoe. However, could he have been the cause of Jean's death in a totally different way? 1940s Los Angeles had its fair share of problems with racism, and particularly between white men and the Latino community. Just a few days or years, excuse me, before Jean French's murder, the Zoot Suit riots had taken place in the city. Is it possible that someone took offense in seeing a white woman with a man of dark complexion? If they did and cho chose to confront French, it isn't hard to imagine the confrontation 
getting completely out of hand and leading to a brutal attack. As with most theories, this one is interesting, but there's one big downside. What about the man she was with? Was he too scared to come forward? Did the killer wait for the man to leave before confronting Jean? Was he perhaps murdered too, but dumped somewhere else? It seems with this case, the more you dive into it, more questions pop up that remain unanswered. Of all the theories or possibilities, I would suggest that the man she was last seen with was most true, was most likely her killer. My thinking is that the pair got into a drunken argument, things escalated all too quickly, and ultimately led to Jane's death that night. The only real problem with this answer is it doesn't explain the message left in red lipstick on the body. Though the killer could have taken inspiration from the short case and left a message for the police to, to throw them off the trail, the sad reality, though, is that in all likelihood, we just won't ever know the truth about what happened on that day that led to Jean's death. I do find it strange how little Jean's murder has been remembered. Jean French lived quite the life, and yet her horrifically brutal murder seems pretty much forgotten and lost in the realms of time. While searching for information on Jean French, it was astounding to how little information there was in comparison to that of Elizabeth Short despite both terrible murders taking place just weeks apart. In April 1950, Jean's case was report, uh, reopened and police said they had a hot suspect. They also admitted that the initial investigation had been considerably below standard. However, no charges ever came from this investigation. The murder remains unsolved. Another tragedy for a woman whose life was so much more than her senseless, sensationalized death. Now a mere footnote in the annals of L.A. Noir. Stay safe and remember, it's scary out there, so leave the lights on. Let us know your thoughts in the comment section below. Who do you think killed Jean? As always, give it a thumbs up if you like our video. Subscribe to the channel. If you want to support the channel, go ahead and you can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash TCNS. Your support helps the channel grow, upgrade our equipment, bring a new host, um, pay them, create even more shows, and hopefully one day take this show on the road. As always, thank you so much for watching, and we will see you next time. You have been listening to the True Crime Never Sleeps Podcast. Thank you for listening. You can follow us on Facebook at True Crime Never Sleeps Podcast and on Twitter at True Crime NS. And follow us on Instagram at True Crime Never Sleeps. Thanks for watching. If you want to support the show, buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash TCNN or become a patron at patreon.com slash True Crime Never Sleeps.